Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning. Yeah. We're going to be looking at the opening chapters in the, in the book of, uh, yeah, coming out of the world, okay, uh, of the book of Exodus. We'll be talking about Moses and uh, we're kind of introducing him to the issues here. But before we do that, several people have asked graciously <clears throat> about last week for Alice Kay and me. We, we went to a place that you've never heard of called Prairie Green, Illinois. I was the minister there at the Prairie Green Church of Christ for uh, a good period of time. And uh, that was back in the, in the 60s. And we, so we drove up to my daughter's house. She t teaches in Lebanon, Indiana, just outside of Purdue University. And uh, we spent the night there, and a miracle happened. They paid for supper. That's, that's absolutely, I mean, that's, that's close to the second coming. And to make matters even better, we, we, it was an hour drive from there over to Prairie Green, and there's an hour difference because when you cross the Illinois line, you, there's an hour difference. And we were there, tried to be there at 9 o'clock. Church started at 9.30. <clears throat> so it, we got back to Lebanon that night, that evening, <clears throat> around 6 o'clock. And they bought supper again. And I just about had heart failure. That just doesn't happen. They always sit there like bumps on a log until they hand me the bill. And, and so we're looking for the Lord to return momentarily, seeing that. But it was a wonderful day except for the fact that the preacher there had set up different ministers through the years on different decades. And when it came to me because I was supposed to polish the thing off when it came to me he said and all the other all of us could add ours together and we wouldn't be as old as he is you know and but it was we had a good time the sad thing is that most of the people who were so important to our lives at that time have gone to heaven the, uh, Luann was actually born while we were there. We were having a revival meeting with Wayne Shaws, the preacher, and went back over to the parsonage, and Alice Kay said, we have to go to the hospital. And so we jumped in the car and headed down number one toward Danville to the hospital, and, she, and the water broke, and she said, we got to hurry. And see, this was her third one, so she was kind of experienced. So I rolled that little Oldsmobile up onto a little Cutlass up onto about 110, really. Going down the road, cops started chasing me and gave up. I mean, I was going that fast. And so we got to the hospital just in time, and I told the lady, when I opened the door, I said, you know, you, you better hurry, the youngin' is on its way. And she said, yeah, they all say that. So they put Alice Kay on the gurney, and she hollered, better hurry, it's on its way. <laughs> so that, that was Luann's entrance into the world. And, uh, and uh, I, as a result of that, 
I suffered mightily from the hand of my wife for some time for getting the, for staying over at the church building longer than I should have, I was told. Anyway, and it got worse, but I don't have time for that because Moses needs to show up here. It's interesting. There's, there's something that I never heard mentioned in Bible college or seminary. It has been something within the last 20, 30 years that has become very popular among Bible-believing serious theologians. And that's that when that is that the that God has a system for for selecting leadership. And it and if you look closely at how he selected Moses and then look at how when Jesus came, how there are several similarities. And and you need to watch that because the Apostle Paul says that because of the way God operates and when believers who get to seek the Lord and seek the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that we actually, from learning from that, will get insight into the second coming. And he actually says that, that the Holy Spirit will actually give us some insights into when Jesus is coming again and to avoid people saying, oh, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, because, but listen to that quiet inner voice of the Spirit of God who will prepare us for that day when he comes. Even though he, to the world it will be like a thief in the night, to us we will say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So I want you to look carefully at some of the events in the selecting of Moses to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. They, were, they had been there uh, over 400 years, and they had essentially become Egyptians. You remember they, they went to Egypt because there was a famine, and Joseph was already there, one of the sons of Jacob, and, and, and he, he was already there in a, in a leadership position of the country, and he had... The Lord had told him there are going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so he had served up. So Egypt was full of food and everybody was headed down that way to get something to eat. And uh, from that time up until the time that Moses was selected to take the children of Israel out of captivity into the promised land was about 430 years. But it, it is interesting to, to, to look at the life of Moses and how God had prepared a lot of things because his hand was, the unseen hand of God was moving and, and no one knew it until after the fact. And looking back, they can see that, that God had been actively getting things, getting the things in order for him to... Uh, to, to make public the fact that he had chosen Moses to lead the people out of slavery into freedom of their land of promise. What had happened is the children of Israel uh, had, been take, had been taken to a place called Goshen. Now, if you were to go, the Nile flows down from Uganda, really. It starts in Uganda. It flows all the way down to the Mediterranean. And it, as any big river does, it forms a delta, like the Mississippi it does down 
uh, in our country. There's a delta area there. It had formed a large delta, and on the east side of that delta was what they called the land of Goshen. And, th and th that's where all of the good grass and stuff was where they fed animals. Israel was essentially the keeper of animals. They had uh, uh, sheep and goats and, and cattle, and they looked after them. There came a time, and the Israelites, only 70 adults, male adults when they went, were, were prospering and the nation was growing and, and uh, it became an issue. There were thousands of them that were developing there and the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, started watching that and he said, if you look carefully, it's in the opening chapter, he said, if war breaks out, there's so many of the Hebrews that they could actually join our enemies and fight against us. It would be a real problem. So nearly all great leaders are fearful. Fearful of the other party, fearful of enemies, fearful. And it's amazing. You would think they would be very secure. One of the few leaders of our country that has ever that was ever really secure and part of that was probably he was a little bit senile was president reagan he told bob McEwen one time he said you know this is the best job i ever had when he was a president for, for several years but most most of our leaders operate from a standpoint of fear and and protection and the same thing happened with pharaoh he said look it, it, there's so many of them that if they join our enemies we're in a heap of trouble. Now, what isn't generally known, but we've been doing this on Sunday night now for several weeks, is that the primary enemies of Egypt, which was the, really a powerful, well-advanced nation, you may be surprised to learn that they were actually practicing brain surgery in Egypt at this time. They had doctors who were doing that. And we know about it now, and we're starting to look in. How in the world did they do that? You know, they didn't have, uh, we think, we don't know, they didn't have the anesthesia and so on and so forth, but they were really advanced. The other countries that they were constantly frightened of was Babylon in particular. And then later on, it was Europe, especially in about 350 B.C. when Alexander the Great arose as the greatest military leader probably in the history of mankind. He actually came eventually and conquered Egypt and, and set up a city there named Alexandria, which became the primary academic center of the ancient world. It, had the, it was there that uh, the greatest library in the ancient world existed. And because uh, at Ephesus, in, 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 uh, in what's modern-day Turkey, they had a great library, and they were trying to, to get the librarian from Alexandria to come and develop their library, hoping that they would be, could become the, an academic center even greater than Alexandria there in, uh, in northern Egypt. So the mayor of Alexandria put the, the, uh, the librarian in jail so he couldn't go, and, and so that tension was always there. Now, what isn't ordinarily known is that all the way from modern-day Syria, all the way down to Egypt, 
were two superhighways. I'm telling you, they were comparable to any of our major interstate highways of the day. One of them came down parallel to the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Egypt into, into what's Cairo today. That was, and since it went parallel to the, to the Mediterranean, it actually was called the Way of the Sea. Then, but if you would go east on the other side of the Jordan River, there was a, another major highway. Now, the military used this all the time, and they were the primary trade routes because uh, Europe and, and the, uh, the Babylon area were very wealthy, and there were traders who came through that all the time. The other was called the King's Highway. It was a major highway, and uh, it was the highway that Israel ended up using under Moses going up before they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land just across from Jericho. Now, you may not think this is very important, but it's essential to understand what's going to take place under Moses. You need to know that those major highways were there. They, these, these were not just little old uh, paths. These were highways that uh, the armies of Rome used in Jesus' day. The armies of Egypt used when they conquered all of that going out north because under King Herod, you'll find this out, under King Herod later on, Herod's primary enemy and his greatest fear was that Cleopatra in Egypt would come up and conquer them in the Promised Land. Now, all of that tension went on all of the time. And so now we've got Moses that God is going to select to lead these thousands of people, hundreds of thousands really, of, of, of Hebrews, out of bondage into freedom. What does it take to prepare a guy like that? Well, God actually started before he was born. Because at that day, the, the Hebrews had midwives who were very accomplished at what they did. And Pharaoh called the midwives in and talked to them and said, Look, here's the deal. We want you, any of the girls that are born, you let them live. Any of the little boys that are born, kill them at birth. Just make sure they die at birth. Well, the midwives were among a group of Hebrews that still believed in the true and the living God. It was just a remnant of the whole group. And they refused to do it. Now, the, the, the reason that Pharaoh said that was women never went to war. They were there to stop the boys because they were potential warriors so they were to be killed and and the scripture actually says that if you said if there's a war if it breaks out and so you kill the boys who could end up being uh so moses was one of those boys and this was carefully planned out if you some of you will recall when he was born they they put him in a little ark covered it with pitch so it would float and sat it in the edge of the in the backwaters of the Nile where the uh, king's daughter Pharaoh's daughter came routinely to take a bath now you may think that's strange but it isn't because they didn't have indoor plumbing folks by the way Ephesus did but Egypt didn't when they they had to go to where the water was and and uh, and so she did that and she took her bath now that's not you you would be uh, I, I never had 
indoor plumbing except at school uh, at, in my home ever uh, until after I got out of college. We, we had a big old tub and uh, filled it up with water and the oldest got to take his bath first and I was the youngest. I got to take a bath in dirty water because mother didn't change the water. Same old soap. That's just the way it was. When Patrick and Eddie came over, it was really interesting. There are no, they grew up in a, in a children's home. There were no showers there. But they still knew how to take a shower. You see, they took a pan of water about like this, filled it full of water, and their shower went like this. You take your hands in the water and you throw it on yourself like this. That was their shower. So when they showed up at our house, I took them into the bathroom, and I said, okay, strip off butt naked. And so they looked at me kind of, I said, take your clothes off. I turned the shower on. I said, now adjust this till it feels really comfortable. And, uh, and they kept, and, and so Eddie said, Patrick, you're going first. Because they were actually frightened. They'd never had a shower. They'd never seen a shower. So they climbed in and, and took a bath. Now you can't get them out. They just roost in there, they, but it's, that was, it was interesting. Cause the, so I, I, I just, for the fun of it, filled up the, the basin there where you wash your hands and so on. I filled it full of water, and I tried to take me one of their showers just to see how it worked, you know, pitching it on me like. It took more time to clean up the floor than it did to take the shower. It was, but that's, the, that's what they lived with. Well, well the queen's... The, uh, this, the king's daughter came there all the time, took a shower, and here on purpose was this baby, little boy, that was supposed to be dead, Hebrew boy, in this little basket. And all the time, an older sister was watching. And so she saw that baby and said, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have any children. I'm going to adopt that baby. Now, what was going on here is we're already looking at God manipulating things to, so that that baby, that baby boy, could be trained to be a leader. God always works early. And I could tell you my story, and I, I'm not going to. I don't have time this morning. We've got to focus on Moses. But God always has a plan for developing and choosing leadership before the leader knows anything about it. It, it, it happens that way. So here was Moses, just a baby, and, and, she, and, and he, he was a nursing baby. They, they didn't have any of that stuff we give babies today. So they go, this little sister comes and said, you know, this baby is a nursing baby. Do you need, you don't have any children. Do you have, need somebody to, to be the nursing mother? She said, yes, I do. Guess what? She chose Moses' real mother. To raise her children. And he then was taken, and her, she went along with it, into the palace of the king, where they went to the, he ended up when he was a youngster. He went to the best schools in the world, by the way. He went to what would be similar to what we have today at West Point. He was trained to be a military leader. So he was extremely well-educated. He was trained as a, as a, for, for leadership. And then there was one item missing. His religion, his religious training was not good. He had been exposed to all. And so he, he was one day out, he, he saw uh, 
the Egyptian slave masters actually just beating to death one of the Hebrews. And he intervened and ended up killing that slave master. Pharaoh found out about it and put a hit on him. And so he had to leave and, and go to Midian. Now, this becomes very important because Midian is in the south of the, uh, of the Sinai Peninsula where the Sinai, Mount Sinai is. And so he goes over there, ends up, ends up marrying a girl, and her father was the priest of Midian. But he happened to be one of those guys that was uh, a, probably a really good teacher, and Moses loved him. He was his father-in-law, and he became tight, should we say. And his father-in-law became his primary religious instructor, and he took him, and, and, and without Moses' knowledge, he, he navigated himself to, uh, to one of the peaks, which was actually a volcanic peak, in the Sinai Desert called Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B or A-B, sometimes it is, because Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. Vowels are added. You have all just consonants. And so uh, it's, sometimes there's a difference in spelling. And so he goes there and... Uh, and, and something on you, and we've all been there that have traveled to Israel and to Egypt with me. By the way, you get up at, in order to go up that mountain and be there at daylight, you have to leave at midnight. And so you get, leave at midnight, and, and it's a long way up to the top of that mountain, so you're there, but uh, where Moses would have been when he received the Ten Commandments. But there, at the base down there where there's a motel where everybody stays, there are all kinds of bushes around there. Have you any idea what those bushes are called? They're called the burning bush. We actually have that as a flower here in the U.S., a thing called the burning bush. Now, that, that's there for uh, whatever sales things for the, uh, that the tourists, for the tourists, but I was kind of interested in that when they said, hey, do you hear the burning bushes? Because... That's what God was going to use because in the scripture it said there was a bush over here burning that didn't seem to be consumed. And so Moses walked over to see what's going on. Remember, he's, he's, he's herding sheep. He's taking care of his father-in-law's flocks for him. And he goes and investigates this thing when all of a sudden God speaks to him. And God says, hey, Moses, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And Moses doesn't have the foggiest idea of what he means by that. And most people don't today either. Now, we don't know exactly why he told him to take his shoes off. Maybe there was a religious thing around where people did. We don't really know. There are several theories, we do, but we don't honestly know. But he said, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Now, holiness then and now were probably terribly misunderstood. We misunderstand holiness today because of the way it's commonly practiced, not because of what the word means. The, word, the Greek word hagiadzo means you set apart something for a specific purpose. And when he said, 
holiness doesn't mean that you pile your hair on your head and it's always here for women big enough that a crow could build his nest and then you make sure you wear a dress that covers your ankles it has very little if anything to do with holiness holiness according to the bible means people that have been set apart by god for a specific purpose and so what God was in the process of doing was letting Moses know that he had been selected as, the le- as a leader for his people for the specific purpose of delivering them from slavery to freedom. And that's really what the word holiness, always, hagiadzo, translated holiness, always means. And, uh, and so, so don't get hung up in religious silliness. It just simply means that it, the important thing is that, that all of us who become Christians, baptized believers like you saw this young man this morning, have, are in the process of being set apart by God for a specific purpose. It isn't just to show up and listen to me, which is really kind of important. And, and I hope you keep on doing that and bring someone with you and bring your pockets full of money. You know how that goes up. I'm trying to be humorous. But anyway, too often that's the case. But anyway, what that you and I have been set apart. That's the reason the Bible talks about the Spirit of God that enters, and he's called the Holy Spirit. He has been assigned the specific responsibility of living within us and guiding us and, in, and changing us from what we were to what he wants us to be. And they had the same problem with Moses. Moses had killed a guy, murdered him. Moses had, had flaws just like we have. That's the reason he was never allowed to enter the promised land. He disobeyed God. All of us have too, one time or another. But God has selected us with all of our flaws to represent him to our world. The difference is, and we'll talk about this some other later, is our leader is Jesus, and, and our responsibility is, is some different. Well, anyway, he's, he's talking to them here, and, and Moses says, and so I'm to be the guy that's supposed to go back to Egypt where there's a hit on me to kill me and, and take all of these people that don't even know me and lead them out, and he starts making excuses. I call them what-ifs. One of the what-ifs was, uh, they don't know me. The other, how am I going to fix that? Another what-if was, what if after I tell them I'm their, their leader, they say, well, who sent you? And, and God said, you're to tell them this, exactly this. Now, the, your, your text, the King James or the NIV, will probably say, tell them I am sent you. Now, I got, I got to stop here a little bit. The, the Hebrew text doesn't exactly say that. The Hebrew text literally, and everybody agrees on this who knows Hebrew, but it's, it's a difficult thing to translate uh, into English. But the literal meaning is this. You tell them that, that, and he's going to use a term that they, in Hebrew, obviously understood. It literally means, I will be whom I will be. 
But that didn't translate easy into reading, and so they just put I am there. But the real meaning behind it, if you knew Hebrew, was this. I am eternal. I am eternal. I'm always who I am. Always who I am. Always who I am. And I always exist and always have existed. That's who God is. As opposed to the gods of, uh, of, of the Egyptians that most Hebrews followed, who were images that they had made with their own hands. They didn't exist ahead of time. And, and so it, he was really putting himself in the position of saying, one of these days I'm going to have to confront these gods through you, Moses, and you need to know who I am. And then Moses said, you, I'm not convinced. I'm not going there. Because I, 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 I have a speech problem. And God said, uh-huh, you do. I'm, I'm, I'm shy, and, and I, don't like to, I don't like to talk in public. And God said, yeah, I know. But you got a brother who's a chatterbox, and we can use him. And besides that, when you need to speak, I will give you the words you need to say. Now, this is one, I hope all of you will, will just make an effort to watch the film, The Ten Commandments. Because Charlton Heston plays, you recall, in that film. And it does a, a good job. I need to, to stop here for a minute. Charlton Heston at one time was here in Portsmouth. He was at the, uh, at the Catholic thing up on the hill where they used to have nuns and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he was up there. And my wife had the hots for him. And so she wanted to go see Charlton Heston. And I think it cost me, got 200 bucks to have her to have a picture made with Moses. And so, but, but you know how it is. She took the 200 bucks and went, had a picture made. I didn't go up there. I didn't need to see him. I'd seen him in the picture show. It's good enough for me. But anyway, anyway just let you know that those kind of things happen and it, and, and so I, I've always kind of had uh, negative feelings about Moses ever since then. But anyway, in, in, what we're looking at here today is that Moses is at the foot of this volcanic peak called Mount Horeb. And he's going through, and God is in the process of convincing him that he should be his representative that would lead them out of trouble. And Moses said, I, I'm, just, I'm just not a good talker. I, I don't need to do that. Now, keep this in mind. God is selecting a leader when all of us would agree that, that the most effective leaders in our culture have been people who are really good talkers. In our lifetime, who was really... Ronald Reagan was probably, he was even known as the great communicator. And he was good at it. He was a Hollywood-trained actor. And he was just really good at, at talking to folks on the tube. I always thought Bill Clinton was really good at it, too. I met him. He was down at the lofts here a few years ago uh, doing something. But, uh, and I watched him from our window. I could see what he was doing. He was really good at handling a crowd. I, I thought President Obama was excellent at dealing with people. He was a good speaker. 
He had a good voice, a lot like me. And, and uh, that's supposed to be humorous for those of you who have difficulty. My, Eastern, my Kentucky twang, they make fun of all the time for those who are, are not really saved. And so in our culture, we look for people who are great communicators. God didn't want one of those. He wanted somebody who would do it his way, not their way. And so he's in the process of, 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 of dealing with this, with, with Moses. And, it's, it's, and Moses is a hard sell. He doesn't want to do it. You know, he, oh, who shall I tell him sent me? Or what? I can't talk. And I don't like to be around crowds. I like it out here in the desert with my sheep. And God is saying, however, I want you. Now, what we're looking at here is, is what God, and, and remember now, the way this is happening, we've, we've, there is a process that God is using that starts long before Moses was born. There was a process in the birth of Jesus that started long before he was born. You remember the angel came to Mary as a teenager? that she was pregnant, went to her cousin Elizabeth and talked to her who was pregnant with John. And so God was in the process of fixing things, of preparing things long ahead of time. Now, the, re that, the reason this becomes extremely important, and you don't hear this very often, but so help me, if I had the time, I could nail this down solid for you because we all talk about the second coming of Christ and what the New Testament teaches is because we understand how God operated in selecting his leadership in both Moses and Jesus, and that all comes after we understand how God works, it will give us insight into when he's coming again. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Now, it isn't for everybody. It isn't for everybody that comes to a church building or who's probably been baptized believer. Because the New Testament teaches that there are those who want to belong to a church and buy a ticket to heaven. And then there are those who diligently seek the kingdom of God. And they're different. Those who diligently seek the kingdom of God is referred to in Scripture as a remnant, a handful. But those who want to go to heaven, just buy me a ticket and let me go, there's a bunch of those. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, 7th chapter of the book of Matthew, and he said, he, did it, he said it this way. He said, the road to salvation for the remnant is narrow and hard and not very crowded. He actually, he says, and few that are that find it. But the road to damnation is wide and easy and crowded. So, Jesus is saying, hey, look, there's a difference between claiming religion and seeking the kingdom of God. Security in your faith comes from seeking the kingdom of God as the number one priority in your life. How many people do you know that really do that? I hope you, if you're not, become one of them. Because it gives you security in your faith so that you get to the place where 
when you're like I'm 85 years old in in a in about a month. Just remember, you know, in the Pentecostal churches, whenever their preacher has an anniversary, they take up a special offering and do all kinds of things. And I wouldn't encourage you to do that, but I wouldn't stop you. But anyway. I'm kidding again. I got to keep you awake till I finish, and because we got another 15 minutes here. Moses, so we got has God has now he's selected him, and he's 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 now got him convinced. Look, this is what you're going to do. This isn't you don't get to vote on it. You can just plead your case, but now that you've pled your case. The hammer is down. The judgment is made. You're the man. You're going to go. And, and Moses remembers that all of this took place at a mountain that God refers to as the mountain of God. This is going to be a place that's going to be very significant in your life. All of us have had that mountain in our life. All of us who know Jesus well have had those experiences, and I've told you some of them in the past, where God has revealed himself and made it known this is the way things are going to be. Sometimes it isn't very pleasant. So Moses is, a, is, is in one sense, a type of Messiah, one that people are looking for because the children of Israel under the Egyptians at this time are suffering mightily and they're crying out to God. Why is it, folks, that we have to wait till we get in real trouble before we start crying out to God? But it seems to be the way it is. So you can see why God periodically sends trouble. Because we don't take him seriously until we know we need him because it's gotten out of control. The situation with God's people, and that's how he refers to them here in Scripture. They're God's people, are really in trouble. And they're beginning to cry out to God, oh, please help us, please help us. These people who were essentially keepers of animals were said, you're not going to do that anymore. We're going to make you brick makers. And besides that, we're going to give you the mud. We're going to quit giving you straw just so it's harder for you to keep the brick together, take more time so that you have to stay busy doing that. And so they, they were trying to learn a trade they knew nothing about. And besides that, their taskmasters were requiring that they make X amount of brick a day. And if they didn't, they were punished really harshly. And so they were crying out, God, help us. We don't know what to do. We need help. All of the time, without their knowledge, God had been carefully preparing, carefully and slowly preparing leadership in the person of Moses. God actually refers to the Hebrews as his people, his chosen people. He, they were chosen for one purpose, not because they were better than everybody else, he chose them because he needed a people through whom he could work and ultimately bring the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. He was in the process at the time he chose Moses of preparing a people for the day to come when Jesus would come. You see, God is actively involved in history and in many instances 
it, we're not even conscious of it because we're not seeking the kingdom, we're seeking our own comfort. That's the greatest problem we have in our culture today. Everybody is seeking financial security and comfort, thinking that the two go hand in hand. So God, has, he, he refers to the Hebrews as his people, his chosen people. But let me tell you something. Even though you hear that even today among, because politically in Israel, God being uh, Hebrews, Israel being God's chosen people. Folks, in, that's not true anymore. They're not God's chosen people. They're not. For God so loved the world that means everybody in it, that he gave his only begotten son. Jews, Gentiles, black, white, yellow, red, makes no difference. Whosoever will, the scripture says, may come. Now, who are the chosen people of God today? They're the holy ones. It's the church. Not the visible church, but within the, in that visible church is the remnant of God. That when Jesus comes and judgment is made, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, when you come before the judge, you don't have to worry. You look forward to what he's going to tell you. You don't approach him with fear. Because those who have been seeking first the kingdom of God can go with confidence and not fear when we come to the judgment that is certain to come because the Bible clearly states we're once to die and after that the judgment, there is a second death. Moses, not only, but, but he had a good heritage too. That was interesting. His mother and his father, it appears were both from the tribe of Levi, which was the base, which was where all the priests of Israel were to come from. So he was then, look at this now carefully, because I said there is a relationship between what is God is doing here and what God is going to do when Jesus came the first time. Moses then becomes a priest of God. And he's used by God to tell them what's going to happen, so he's a prophet. And he's the leader, so he's the king. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. Guess what? When Jesus comes, he is a prophet, he is a priest. I don't have time to, to, nail, to nail all that down, but he is a prophet, priest, and king. So this is the way God operates. He's letting us know, this is my method of dealing with my people and the world in history. Moses set Israel free from slavery of the Egyptians. When Jesus come, came, rather, the first time, he came to set humanity free from the penalty of sin. The Apostle Paul mentions that many, many times. He's a deliverer. Moses was a deliverer. Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin because he paid for our sin on the cross for those who put their faith in him when we come to the judgment. Now, this dealing with the historical acts of God in history 
isn't the most exciting thing to listen to, but it has become, it is very, very important to get in your head, here's how God operates. Here's how he functions. And when you learn that, then we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can guide our lives into his will. And we become instruments of helping him carry out his will in our world today. Now, there are several passages that I give, but I want to get to this last issue. <clears throat> Over in the book of Numbers, this is a, an interesting observation for me. In the 12th chapter <clears throat> of the book of Numbers, even though Moses was the primary guy who put it into writing, <clears throat> here's what it says about Moses. Talks about his family here because Miriam and and his his older sister and brother were actually opposing him because he married a Cushite or a dark-skinned woman, <clears throat> and they spoke against him. And and then in the third verse it says this. Now listen to this. Now Moses was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Okay, now that's meant to be a, a wonderful compliment. But be careful, because in our culture, humility is generally defined in popular usage by a feeling. I feel so humble because of something that good has happened to me that I didn't deserve. Well, that, but that's not what the Bible teaches humility is. Humility is, in the Bible, an individual who will step down out of the way and let somebody else have the glory. This is exactly what God was looking for. Why? Because to God be the glory, great things he hath done, the songwriter said. You remember? And so Moses didn't want the glory. He wanted God to get it. One of the things that I get irritated with when I read the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston stands up there, you know, with his uh, snake that turned into a rod or a rod that turned in, lifts his hand up and shouts out so that you could hear it all. You know, stand and see the mighty acts of God right before they were crossing the Red Sea. This guy didn't do that. He didn't even want to talk in public. He didn't want that glory. He wanted God to be the thing that people cared about and looked to. He didn't want that. He was shy. And he was willing to step back and let God do his thing so he got the glory. Humility is that willingness to make sure that God is in the spotlight and you're not as a believer. I was one of my really good tea. He's, he died just about uh, a year and a half ago. 
the principal that I that was my coach in junior high school. His name was Pruitt Painter. He was a big man, six foot, probably six foot five or six, probably weighed 250 pounds. And uh, Mr. Painter taught me to be a point guard. He said, "When you're on the when you're on the floor, I shouldn't have to tell you anything. You should know what I think, and you you're the ones that." Do. And he said, "Just remember this: a point guard who handles the ball most of the time." makes everybody else better just by the fact that he's on the floor. He's not looking for the glory. He's looking to win. Don't ever forget that. And uh, Because all of us, all of us, like to be the high point man. That's the natural person. The spiritual person doesn't care to get the glory. He doesn't care whose name is in the paper. He wants to win. I remember, and there's a guy here this morning sitting right over here, and he's kind of the kind of people I always envied. He's about this tall. And in high school, he scored 51 points in one game. In college, he scored 53 points in one game. Lord have mercy. Nobody ought to be able to do that. And I don't, but see, I don't know. I didn't ask whether it was before the two point, because when I played, there was no such thing as a three point. The most I ever scored in a single game was against University of Kentucky's freshman team down at the old, in Lexington. I scored 27 points, and I guarantee you it would have been 35 if it had been that three point thing that they all talk about. Because I wasn't looking for the glory. Ha, ha, ha. You always do. That's the natural thing that, that we're there. But it never got, I never got it out of my mind, what Mr. Painter said. If you're a good point guard, you make everybody else better just by the fact that you're there. And the deal is if everybody else gets better, you're more apt to win. It's that simple. Moses was the kind of guy who knew that as long as God was leading the way and he got the glory, they couldn't lose. They just couldn't lose. He was a humble man, not seeking glory. When you go into the New Testament, it becomes very interesting when, they look at, when you look at Jesus. If you have to go to the second chapter of the book of Philippians and read it, starting at about verse 5, if I recall correctly, and I do because I'm, I wrote it down. And this won't take long, if I can never find it. Philippians 2. Here's what he says that you and I should be. Now listen carefully. Your attitude, I'm reading from verse 5, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, that means when he was in heaven, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, a servant, a bondservant, being in the human likeness, 
and being in appearance a man. He humbled himself and even became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which was the worst kind of death you could have. And he's saying then, this is what I want you guys to be. And in the 10th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writing to a church that was fussing about who was the greatest, in the 24th verse, said this, Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. If we really care and love about each other and love each other, we, we don't just say, me, me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. We look at our brothers, our own family, because the church is a family. And when those are in, there are those who are in need, we don't think about ourselves, we think about them. Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians, we bear each other's burdens, and this is the way we prove we love each other. He goes on even further and says in Ephesians 4 that the unity of the body of Christ is accomplished when we care as much about the other guy as we do ourselves. Naturally, we don't do that. My mother used to say this, and she was a super Bible scholar. She used to say, the world believes that in this saying, blessed is he who toots his own horn, for it shall be well tooted. The unbeliever, that's the unbeliever way. The Christian way is, see that the other guy can share in the glory. When you do that, you can't lose. You can't lose. You're bound to be a winner. Humility is, we all agree, God gets the glory by what we do in his name. And we step out of the limelight to make sure that when the Shekinah glory of God shines down, Jesus is standing right in the middle of it. Because you and I, you and I are holy people chosen by God for a single reason. Not just to get to heaven, that's a side benefit. He chose you and me as his people, the chosen people of God, to show the world who he is by the way we treat each other. It's that simple. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I tremble sometimes at what you expect from us. But I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, freely invited to each of our lives, we can humbly set aside our desire for glory and make a conscious effort to see that the world knows who you are by the way we treat each other. We thank you, Father, for showing us how to do it in the life of Moses and in the life of Jesus. And we ask you to continue to bless us and help us as we struggle toward being what you want us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.